Welcome to the Bone Coach Show, dedicated to helping you understand all things related to diet, lifestyle, bone health, and how you can live and thrive with low bone density and osteoporosis. I'm your host, Kevin Ellis, certified health coach, health and wellness speaker, and above all else, your bone coach. After being diagnosed with osteoporosis in my early 30s, I transformed my health through diet and lifestyle and now help my clients and community members do the same through my online coaching practice, Bone Coach. Com. Look, there are no quick and easy cures for low bone density, but the choices we make every single day can have a powerful impact on our bones, our health, and our general well-being. I'll share the research, interview the experts, and help you figure out how to get the conditions right in your body so you can better your bones through diet and lifestyle. Short disclaimer, I'm not a medical doctor and this show should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare team before making medical decisions and changes to your diet and lifestyle. With that being said, let's get on with the show. Something to remember is that our gut is the home to about 80%, give or take, of the immune system. And so anything going wrong with that digestive process is going to impact the immune system and is can very easily trigger an inflammatory process. And this can look, this can kind of manifest in a number of different ways. This can manifest if you have what we call leaky gut, which is basically a compromised gut lining. Specifically what we're talking about here is the lining of the small intestine, which is in my opinion, the most miraculous moment in the digestive process, because this is where the outside world becomes you, <laughs> right? If you haven't done so already, especially if you're newly diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis, or if your most recent bone density scan still showed more bone loss, go ahead and pause this episode and head over to bonecoach.com to sign up for your free seven-day osteoporosis kickstart guide. That's going to give you everything you need step by step by step over the next seven days to get on the path to improvement and stronger bones. You won't want to miss that. So pause this right now head over to bonecoach.com and I'll be here as soon as you get back. Welcome, welcome to this episode of the Bone Coach Show. Joining us today to explore healing your gut, supplementation for your digestive health, gut health testing, and how all of this relates to your bones is Margaret Floyd Berry. Margaret Floyd Berry is a functional nutritionist, writer, and real food advocate who's been on the pursuit of the most nutritious and delicious way of eating for the better part of her adult life. Having seen family members suffer the devastating effects of chronic illness from a young age, Margaret has long had the desire to help others find a better way back to optimal health and well-being. Through years of experience working with most complex client cases, including reversing her own autoimmune condition, Margaret has established a powerful system for restoring health by addressing the root cause of illness. Today, Margaret teaches fellow practitioners the same proven system she uses to get her clients life-changing results through Restorative Wellness Solutions, a two-year comprehensive functional nutrition certification program for qualified health professionals. With hundreds of alumni around the world, Margaret and the Restorative Wellness Solutions team are actively working to change the way health is delivered. Margaret also runs Eat Naked Kitchen, a thriving private practice that supports clients throughout North America and Europe, and is the author of Eat Naked, Unprocessed, Unpolluted, and Undressed Eating for a Healthier, Sexier You, and the Naked Foods Cookbook. Margaret, it is so great to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm super excited to dive into this stuff. Me too. Let's get into your background and how you ended up developing uh, Restorative Wellness Solutions also. What is that? Uh, maybe explore that a little bit more and then share that with our audience. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've always loved food and to eat. And I had a really profound moment when I was in my early 20s, where I learned the power of dietary changes to addressing health. And for me, it showed up as a really horrible case of eczema, just awful skin condition. Um, I'm sure most of your audience knows what it is. It's basically an itch that rashes. And it is just, it's just like the, the itch is out of this world. <laughs> and I'd had it since my teens, nothing would help. And, um, it was not until I was in my mid twenties that a friend of mine was like, well, have you ever thought about going to someone and working on this more like naturally with diet? And I thought like, what on earth would diet have to do with my skin? And, um, well, sure enough, it turns out that it had a whole lot to do with it. I went to a practitioner who dramatically changed my diet, put me on this huge protocol. Um, and within about three weeks, that eczema was completely gone and has never come back. And I'm not in my 20s anymore. So um, that was that was when I opened my eyes to this, um, the, the power of, of food and healing and it was happening in the background as well as that my mom was really sick with autoimmune disease. She had three very severe types of autoimmune disease, as well as actually she had a very severe osteoporosis, bringing this back to bone health as a result, side effect of the medication she was on. And I basically got a front row seat to her very slow kind of brutal degradation. You know, on one hand, she was a medical miracle, um, but then the very medications that were keeping her alive it was the side effects from those very medications that she lost her life to about 20 years later. So it's um, there's a better way. And so with Restorative Wellness Solutions, I'm not the founder of it. I'm, I'm now the owner of it, but my former business partner was the founder. You know, what we're doing is we're training health professionals in how to be really strategic with dietary changes, with supplement protocols, with lifestyle changes so that, you know, people don't have to suffer like my mom. Because had she had these tools, um, it is very likely she would still be here today. And so it's my just mission in this lifetime to equip as many other health professionals as possible with these tools that have totally transformed my health um, and that I see transform the health of many of my clients and of the clients of our practitioners as well. So that's kind of the big picture history here. It's um, it's really powerful work, what we can do um, with manipulating what we eat. That's wonderful. And what do you see at, so diet nutrition is obviously central to, yeah. uh, you know, nourishing our bodies, but what do you see as like the, the connector between a lot of the different health conditions that you see uh, coming into your practice too? Well, I would say the absolute number one starting point is gut health. One of the things we like to think of the gut is really as the mother of the body, right? It is what nourishes us. There's that saying that's, you know, total cliche at this point of you are what you eat. Um, I would amend that to you are what you can digest of what you eat. But it, it's really true, right? We are walking food. I think, you know, when, when you stop to think about it, it's actually quite profound that we can sit down and, you know, eat our dinner and that our body has this magnificent ability to take that break all of that food down into its nutrient components, absorb that, shuttle those nutrients around our body to fuel our cells, to repair our cells, to build our bones, to, to fuel our muscles, to build our muscles. I mean, every single process in the human body is built by and fueled by what we eat. And so if there's anything 
going wrong with that process, if there's anything interrupting it, and there's, we can talk about the many different ways this dysfunction can manifest, but if there's anything going wrong with this truly miraculous process, that is absolutely going to affect one's health. How it shows up is different from person to person. For some people, it's very overtly digestive, right? Like they will feel digestive symptoms. They will, you know, have a horrible pain or will have trouble passing their bowel movements or, you know, terrible GERD or even there's a whole myriad of symptoms that they'll have. But for other people, it can show up as nutrient deficiencies that lead to bone issues. It can lead to um, joint health issues. It can be lead to migraine, skin issues like it did for me when I had that eczema. At the time, I didn't have a lot. I mean, I had some gut issues, but it wasn't the gut issues that were the problem in my mind. It was it was the skin issues, right? But but really healing the digestion and repairing my body's ability to handle food so that it was nourishing me and not creating a source of inflammation and toxicity, which is one of the things that will happen if that digestive process isn't working properly, is that food, no matter how beautifully organic and local and properly prepared and all the things... If we're not breaking it down properly, if we're not able to kind of harvest those key nutrients from the diet and use them effectively in the body, that very food can become the enemy and can be a real source of problems for us. And so what's happening in the body? Like you, you give a very specific example of eczema, right? Yeah. So eczema shows up on the skin. And yeah. then how do we know, like what's going on in the body to where we have these digestive issues that are taking place, but somehow that's now manifesting itself in the skin. What's taking place in the body? Right. So there's multiple different pieces here. There's one piece is about being able to access the nutrients themselves. So that's kind of the most basic level, right? Being able to actually, this is kind of a functional issue. So do you have enough of the hydrochloric acid and the enzymes and the, the bile salts? Do you have all of the things that you need to actually break down the food into its nutrient components so that you can access those from the diet and then fuel whatever needs to happen in the body? So that's one piece. The second piece is when there is, when the gut and that digestive process inadvertently creates an inflammatory burden on the body. Something to remember is that our gut is the home to about 80%, give or take, of the immune system. And so anything going wrong with that digestive process is going to impact the immune system and is can very easily trigger an inflammatory process. And this can look, this is kind of manifest in a number of different ways. This can manifest if you have what we call leaky gut, which is basically a compromised gut lining. Specifically, what we're talking about here is the lining of the small intestine, which is, in my opinion, the most miraculous moment in the digestive process, because this is where the outside world becomes you, right? So, you know, you have the small intestine, this like amazingly long tube, basically, that is one cell thick. That is not very thick. That's one cell thick. And that lining is, it's made up of these just like little, kind of like little bricks in a wall, right? That are lined up next to each other. Um, these are what we call the tight junctions. And they're very, very tight together. And what happens is they selectively open up and close. And just to like allow basically nutrients through very specifically, very intentionally. And that's going straight into the bloodstream. That is where the outside world becomes you. In many ways, we're basically one big complicated donut, right? And the inside, you know, our, our digestive process, it's this big long tube that's really, I mean, it lives inside the body, but it's still the outside world. 
And so this is this moment, the small intestinal lining. That's the moment where the outside world becomes you. And it's very delicate. It's one cell thick. And so if anything sort of irritates that gut lining or compromises the integrity of those cells lined up next to each other, um, that's when we get what we call leaky gut, which just means that there is now the opportunity, you know, it's not as well regulated. You know, those tight junctions aren't tight like this. They could be like loosey-goosey and open like this, which allows all manner of things into the bloodstream. It could be you know, improperly digested broccoli that you had for lunch. It could be toxins that are bound for the, like, let's think about what the end result is of things that don't get absorbed into our body. That's what ends up in the toilet bowl, right? Like that's, I mean, we're, we're, we're flushing through pathogens, toxins, debris. And ideally we have a very intelligent system that's only allowing into the body through this lining of the small intestine. It's only allowing in the, the nutrients that we need. But when you have a compromised gut lining, what's happening is all manner of things is getting in there. And that is absolutely going to increase inflammation in the body. That's the immune system's job housekeeping, right? It's basically making sure that there's no debris in there. It's making sure that there are no pathogens. And so if we're allowing all of that to get into the bloodstream, we're engaging that immune system. We're over, we're overdriving it, right? That's a key thing. You asked specifically about eczema. You know, that's a key thing. Anything in eczema, we now know there's autoimmune component to that. Anything that has an immune component to it absolutely is going to be impacted by um, the digestive system not functioning well. So that inflammatory burden that can come just from an, um, an, impaired, um, an impaired digestive system is really important to consider. And then the, the well, there's, there's two other pieces to this, but the, um, the next piece is um, the microbiome. So microbiome, this beautiful sort of gut garden that lives um, in our small and large intestine. And it's just, ideally, we want it nice and robust and diverse and lots of, you know, I think of like vegetables and flowers, if you're to liken it to the, to the garden, right? A lot of the good guys in there to balance out any kind of like weeds or opportunists that could overgrow. When you have imbalances in that, there are certain bacteria that themselves are highly inflammatory just kind of like the weeds in your garden, right? Like if you don't tend to your garden and you just let the weeds overgrow, they take things out. And I haven't seen like tulips take things out, right? It's always the like, you know, the invasive species that come in and like ruin your garden. Um, and so you, um, it's same kind of thing is happening in the gut. And, um, and that can create, you know, some of these, they produce something called LPS or lipopolysaccharides. And those are really acutely inflammatory. You have those going into the bloodstream, now we have real problems. That's creating tons of systemic inflammation. So that's another key piece of it. And then the last would be food sensitivities, which are created through that mechanism I described with the small intestine, basically having a leaky gut barrier. Um, the food sensitivities is when you eat a food that should be totally innocuous and it triggers inflammation in your body because of this mechanism being triggered over and over and over. So it can be, I mean, we think of foods that are irritants to the gut, foods that are inflammatory. Well, you know, we go straight to like gluten and, you know, dairy and sugar and processed foods. And yeah, hundred percent, all of those things are inflammatory and it can also be something as innocuous as like lettuce or broccoli, right? Um, if a food sensitivity has been able to develop over time, you eat that 
great broccoli for lunch. And that could trigger an inflammatory process. I've seen people who have inflammatory processes triggered by turmeric. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're consuming all this turmeric because it's anti-inflammatory, but in their body at that moment in time, it's actually doing the exact opposite. So all of these things together, um, we need to be considering it. You can see how there's so many different ways. This might manifest as gut health stuff, but it also might manifest as the eczema. It also might manifest as, as bone health issues. Um, and then we can discuss specifically everything I just talked about relates directly to bone health, right? Like we need to be able to absorb those key nutrients, the minerals, the vitamins, collagens, protein for muscle synthesis so that we can like build, you know, lift heavy things to stress the bones, build more bone. We need to reduce our inflammatory burden because we know excess inflammation is going to inhibit that is, is going to create um, issues with bone health. The microbiome, again, the balance with that, with the inflammatory pieces also, you know, so many interesting connections with, with the microbiome itself, you know, certain organisms will, can either stimulate or inhibit either the bone building or the bone breaking down process, which is fascinating. It also impacts hormonal health, which of course our hormones are integral to bone health as well. You know, so all of these pieces are so important to be thinking about whether or not you have any digestive symptoms, because symptoms themselves don't always tell the full story. Yeah. And you are so right. I mean, there is a massive connection between the immune system and your bone health to anything speaking in the same language as, you, as the immune system is speaking in yeah. the same language as the cells that break down your bones too. So uh, those osteoclasts. So, and then you, you mentioned something that I think is so important. A lot of times we hear about these superfoods or these things that everybody should be consuming. You mentioned turmeric is one of them and turmeric can be great for many, many people, right? But you mentioned maybe there, there's a situation where one of these superfoods is not right for you, right? Yeah. If it creates inflammation in your body, it is not a health food for you. Yeah. So you just keep that in mind, make note of those helpful things along the way, but just, um, just know that not everything is going to work for you and that's okay. Uh, but uh, you talked about food sensitivity testing. Now, I know sometimes when people suspect that they have gut issues or they have autoimmune issues, they start removing a lot of different foods automatically. They, they may not actually do any testing. Do you prefer to see people do testing first or food sensitivity testing or gut health testing first? Or do you just say, you know what, let's pull these foods out that could be inflammatory, but we don't know for sure. What's, what's your thoughts on that? I'm so glad you asked this question because I will say I used to be a big elimination diet person. You know, we had the heavy hitters, we'd pull them out. And here's the deal. Back in the day when I first started doing this work, I was, I've been doing this like 17 years now. And back in the day, like, you know, even as recently as 10 years ago, you manipulate the diet with the what I think of as the usual suspects, right? You pull out gluten, possibly all grains. You pull out dairy, you pull out soy, you pull out refined foods, which knocks out most sugars and industrial seed oils. Right there, it was amazing what we could do with diet alone. That's just not the case anymore. And that's a whole other conversation of why. But what I see now, and I'm sure there's an element that it's a different client population, but what I see all too often are people who have done these crazy elimination diets and who are restricting, 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 and not getting any better. And so I'm a big believer in testing because it allows us to narrow in on your unique bio-individuality. Because how are you going to figure out you're sensitive to turmeric? 
right? Like how do you actually, here's the thing about food sensitivities. And I actually want to, is it okay if I just do a little, like, let's define the language? Because I think there's a Please. lot of confusion. Like, what's an allergy? What's an intolerance? What's a sensitivity? So a food sensitivity is essentially when you consume a food, it's triggering an inflammatory response. Now, it's not a food allergy. That's a different mechanism. So a true food allergy is being tr is is that's being mediated by what we call immunoglobulin E as an IgE allergy. It's a, it's a different mechanism. There is inflammation. It happens in the tissue. It's different. And one of the key things about a true food allergy is it's immediate. So it's a lot easier, especially as adults, different with kids, but especially with adults, it's a lot easier. I mean, sometimes there's cases where we need to test, but mostly you eat the food and you get the symptom like pretty darn quickly. Like think about the peanut allergy, the shellfish allergy. These are not things that you're wondering about days later. You're, you, and, and to help this or to hurt this, um, every exposure, the reaction gets louder typically. You know, think about the, the bee sting is kind of the classic example. The first bee sting, if you're allergic, it's like not a good thing. The second bee sting is a really, really big deal if you're allergic. It's the same kind of thing, not quite as severe for most people, luckily, but same kind of thing, progression with food. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're also not talking about what I'm going to call a food intolerance. And I know this is where it gets confusing because we have food sensitivity tests that are called food intolerance tests, but an intolerance is really a digestive incapacity. It's a lack of digestive capacity to break down a given aspect of a food. So think about the lactose intolerance, right? Someone who's lactose intolerant, they don't produce enough of the enzyme lactase to successfully break down lactose sugars and dairy. Again, it's not, um, it's not hard to figure out because the symptoms are pretty immediate. The person eats the dairy and sometimes minutes later, at least hours later, they've got some pretty miserable digestive symptoms. So they're not guessing quite so much. I mean, sometimes when people really aren't, aren't kind of tuned into their body and into what they're eating, but it's not something that we're going to test for. That's something we can absolutely identify through trial and error. And with food intolerance like that, there's our digestive intolerance. Basically, there's no immune component to it. The third is the food sensitivities, and that's what we're talking about here. So that's you eat a food, and it's triggering an inflammatory response. Sometimes that's happening with, with antibodies, um, so like IgG, IgM, IgA. Sometimes it's just happening within the cell, and there's no antibodies at all. And this is important when I talk about testing in a second here. But one of the really annoying things about food sensitivities is there can be some that are delayed. So here we are, we are talking on, what day is it? It's Tuesday. We're talking on a Tuesday. I could eat something today and not have a reaction until Thursday or Friday. Like there's no way you're going to figure out if you have, you know, a flare of eczema or a migraine or joint issues on Thursday that you can link it back to something that you ate today. You to also compound it is that you can have there's, there's different degrees of sensitivity, right? You can have a, a moderate sensitivity to a whole bunch of foods that if you were to eat them individually, not a big deal, but you eat them, happen to have them all together in a meal, and now it can cause quite a significant problem. It's really hard to kind of tease out what's the issue when you have all of these confounding factors. So this is why I like testing because it just gets us right to the heart of things really, really quickly. And I'm a big, you know, there's a lot of different food sensitivity tests out there. 
Um, I do have very strong opinions on which ones that I, I think are clinically useful. I wish that that also aligned with the ones that are the best researched. Unfortunately, it doesn't. So most research done on food sensitivities are done with the IgG and IgM food sensitivities. And the, the challenge with that is that, I mean, I love that there's great research on it. The challenge with it is that elevations in those antibodies does not necessarily correlate directly with, with elevations in inflammation. And elevation that's in antibodies in and of themselves isn't that big of a deal if there's no inflammation involved at the same time. You you kind of, if both are happening, then it's a problem. But if it's just elevations in the antibodies, that's, a, that's part of the body's housekeeping. That's part of the immune system just doing its job. It becomes a problem when those, because what happens is the antibody basically fixes onto that little piece of food, the undigested broccoli, is, let's call it. Just it, it, they, they create a complex. And that's the immune system just shuttling it out of the body. If you have leaky gut, like what we talked before, then what can happen is so much is getting into the bloodstream. You're getting so many of these complexes that they can start to affix on tissue and they become kind of sticky. And stickiness to the immune system is a property of things that are truly dangerous, like bacteria, you know, viruses, you know, these are things that w this now kind of sets up the next red alarm in the, the next level and tier in the immune system. And if, if that happens, then um, that's when we're driving inflammatory processes, right? But if you're not, if that's not happening and there's ways to measure that and some tests, some antibody tests do. So if you're going to do an antibody test, I absolutely encourage you to do one that not only looks for the antibodies, but it also looks for evidence of the immune system actually reacting to those antibodies. So you know that it's actually something driving inflammation. That's super important. The challenge is, remember I said that there are some food sensitivities that happen at a cellular level. They're not actually being mediated by antibodies at all. And there's no antibody involvement. And in these cases, those, those get completely missed by those food sensitivity tests. So you can, if you don't have the immune system markers, you can have false positives. If you do have the immune markers, you still are going to get some false negatives. And I've seen clients, I've had many clients come to me who've done years of food sensitivity testing. As part of what gives food sensitivity testing a bad name, they come in with these insane lists of like 80 foods they can't eat. And they're not eating any of them. And they still feel like a bag of dirt. So they're still eating things that are triggering inflammation while they're not eating a bunch of things they could be eating because they've got a bunch of false positives and false negatives. So the test that I really quite like is what we call a mediator release test, um, the MRT. ALCAT uses a similar methodology. It's just sort of an earlier version of it, if you've heard of the ALCAT. Um, so the MRT is the one that I like by Oxford Biomedical. And it's just a more advanced technology. And what it's doing is it's taking the whole kind of mechanism question out of the equation. So they don't care if it's an antibody mediated or if it's cellular mediated. It's, it's going to, if a food on ingestion triggers inflammation, that's what it's going to tell you. And from a clinical perspective, as a clinician, that's what I care about because that's what's going to make the difference for a client, identifying foods that are triggering inflammation and identifying and removing them from the diet temporarily. This is a really important piece. I don't know if I just didn't hear it or if it wasn't said, but I can remember when I first went to that naturopath way back in my 20s. That whole piece of you will be able to eat these foods again, just it didn't register. I don't know if she didn't say it. I don't know if I didn't hear it. 
But I went home and I bawled my little eyes out because I was like, because oh, it was not the usual suspect. I mean, it felt like I couldn't eat anything. Um, you are speaking, not. you are speaking my language, right? There, I remember as you're saying this, I remember standing across the counter from my wife uh, with a piece of fish and a plate of spinach. And those were the only things I was eating. And I was crying. And I said, I remember saying this, I said, is this what my life has come to? This yes. is, this is all I can eat. This is what my life has come to. And I had fish falling out of my mouth and I was just, <laughs> I was so sad, but now here, my diet is very diverse and rich and, and nutrient dense now, but I, I, I'm in that place with you right now. So Continue, continue. Yeah, on, it's such an important detail. People get, you know, I have to always, all clinicians we're working with, I'm like, you need to let them know this is temporary. You can do anything for like, you know, it's three to six months on average, three to six months. And then we introduce most things back in. There's normally like one or two things we have to keep out, but like, we're not looking here to create a restricted diet. We're looking for healing, right? And, and then exactly as you said, expanding the diet, nice and diverse and rich and delicious. So this is this is a key piece of the process. Now I will say I never do food sensitivity testing on its own. And the reason for that is that you'll identify those foods that are inflammatory and remove them. Probably feel really good. I mean, folks do this and they feel great. Challenge is it doesn't stick. And the reason for that is they haven't addressed what allowed those food sensitivities to develop in the first place, right? They haven't healed their gut. And sometimes, especially when those symptoms aren't digestive, they don't see a reason, right? It's like, well, if I have eczema and I remove these foods from the diet and the eczema goes away, why do I care about my gut? Well, you care about your gut because if you haven't healed it, what you're going to do is develop a whole new set of food sensitivities. And this is another reason food sensitivity tests get such a bad rap is they get shorter. You know, you, you do the test, you take out the foods, you feel better. The symptoms start to creep back in. So you do another test take out more foods, feel better, but you get this shrinking, shrinking, shrinking list. And as we just said, that's not the goal here. The goal is healing. So I'm a big believer in doing gut testing alongside the food sensitivity testing. And this is the methodology that we teach our practitioners. This is what I've been using in my practice for years. It is amazing when you do these two things together and you use the gut test to understand what's going on in the gut, which is helpful when you've got symptoms because one set of symptoms can be, there's so many different things it, that could be driving that and how you address each one of those things is totally different. When you have someone who, who's asymptomatic, they're not having any digestive symptoms, then you, what on earth are you gonna do, right? It's like throw some probiotics at it. No, I mean, probiotics are great. I'm not down on probiotics, but that's just not sufficient for true comprehensive gut healing. So we need the stool testing in order to tell us what on earth is going on inside the digestive tract. So we can be very strategic with how we support and help to heal the gut. And then while we're doing that, we use the food sensitivity test to identify, well, what foods are triggering inflammation right now in the body? We take those out of the diet temporarily while we do all the healing work. And then at the end of that process, we then reintroduce those foods back in. And very often, as I said, we're able to reintroduce almost everything. I'm, you know, I've got a couple of foods that are like hard lines. Well, really, I've got one food. I'm a, I'm a big, like, I don't know that gluten has a place in this human diet. It's just, it's just like such a troublemaker, even if you're not celiac, even if you're not, don't have autoimmune. Certainly, if you have any kind of autoimmune, it's just like, permanent goodbye. I'm sure you've had these conversations on this. I have celiac disease too. So I, I can, I know you do. So, you know. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, gluten is uh gluten is a not a nece- not necessity in the diet, I don't think so. Not at all. Not at all. But other than that, really, you know, I'm a believer we should be eating whole foods and real food and I'm not going to send folks off to eat like the processed junk and for know, sure at all. But um, but really we're looking for this varied diet as I'm not, I don't have other than the gluten, I don't really have, um, a sort of, you know, individual foods that I'm going to come down on super hard. I mean, even something like dairy, some, a lot of people don't do well with dairy, but some people do really well with dairy and that's okay. You know, you figure that out for, for yourself through this process. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, let, let's talk about gut healing because, yeah. um, wh- what is that? What does it take to heal the gut? Yeah. So now, well, now when you know what's going wrong, you you want to be making sure that you're supporting those key areas. Now, there's five key areas that you always want to be thinking about. First is digestive function. So that's, you know, we talked at the beginning about the body's ability to actually break down um, the food that you eat into its nutrient components so that it can be absorbed into the system, circulated and does its thing. So there's really three key things we're thinking about with digestive function. One is hydrochloric acid. Hydro, I mean, this is, you know, we could stop there. There's way, there's more things too, but the hydrochloric acid, especially when we're talking about bone health is so vitally important. So simple. And I honestly say way too many practitioners because it's so simple, kind of skim over it, but it is essential. So hydrochloric acid is your your stomach needs to be at a sufficient pH, a very, very low pH between 1.5 and three. That's super low. Like you stick your finger in that it's burning. It's, and that's what, that's the point, right? It's chemically breaking down um, the food that you eat and you need to have a pH of between 1.5 and three in order for your stomach to secrete pepsin which is the primary enzyme that breaks down protein in order to bring the contents of the of the stomach to that low enough acidity to stimulate all sorts of other vitally important processes further south in the digestive tract. I mean, that's what triggers the little sphincter between your stomach and the duodenum, the top of your small intestine to open up and let the contents of the stomach through into that next stage of digestion. You know, we have all sorts of folks taking antacids and acid blockers and PPIs and such. And it's, it's not, it's, it's suppressing the body's ability to secrete hydrochloric acid. And most of the time it's actually that they need more, it's that they're, they don't have enough. And so what we have is is the acidic contents of the stomach in the wrong place, like in the esophagus, right? Your esophagus is designed for a pH of seven, neutral, absolutely neutral. Your stomach has all these protective layers and lining, this thick, thick mucosal lining so that you don't digest it, right? That's what ulcers are, is the breakdown in that lining where you are digesting the stomach. That's why they hurt so freaking much. Um, But um, we need that hydrochloric acid because if you have a stomach at a pH of, let's say, five, not acidic enough to break down protein, to access those minerals that you need, to the vitamins, you know, this intrinsic factor, which is what's required to absorb B12. That's only released if you have sufficient acidity. Um, it's what protects you from foodborne pathogens like parasites. I mean, you know, think about the the picnic where, you know, half the party goes home and gets food poisoning and the other half doesn't. What's the difference there? Well, those who didn't likely have significantly more robust hydrochloric acid production. It's actually killing off anything pathogenic in the stomach so that it can't take hold and cause trouble. 
it, it's, it's so ridiculously important. So we're looking at hydrochloric acid sufficiency. Um, we're looking at enzyme output. We're looking at um, biliary function. So that's, that's basically your body's ability to break down and emulsify fats so that your body can absorb those. So that's digestive function. The next piece is to um, heal and seal that really, really delicate lining of the gut. This is one of those things where, you know, I don't, I don't know that you need testing for it. I know some tests that include markers like zonulin and such to let you know if, if there's gut permeability. The challenge I have with those is that, yes, zonulin might be elevated and that's one mechanism by which you can have intestinal permeability, but there are many other mechanisms. So if you see it elevated, then you know for sure that there's gut permeability. But if you don't see it elevated, it doesn't rule it out. And there's so many things that cause gut permeability and it's so simple to address that if my logic, and it's so just essentially important to have that gut lining, just nice, those junctions, nice and tight um, that we always support it. And so you're doing things like, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways to do that. Pretty much every major supplement line will have some kind of gut healing support, um, L-glutamine, vitamins A and D, marshmallow root, aloe vera. Um, oh my goodness, there's so many um, different herbs and nutrients that are super nourishing um, to help to heal that gut. It's, it's quite, it's not, it's not hard to do. So definitely want to be thinking about that. You definitely want to be thinking about the microbiome. And I kind of joked about probiotics, but I'm a big believer in probiotics. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in certain types over others. Like I love the spore forming probiotics. Am I allowed to say brands? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I love Megaspore Biotic. That is a fantastic probiotic. Yep. Sometimes people can't tolerate it because it's it's doing some some good old housekeeping in there. So if you're somebody who tries it and it's too much, I've had clients even just open up a capsule and sprinkle a little grains in their food. It's it's also unusual in that you actually take it with your meal, not um, not separate from the meal. But it's it's spore forming, meaning that it actually takes residence in the gut. A lot of probiotics we take are transient. So you eat them and then you poop them out. And they do lots of work on the way through, but they don't establish residency. And what that can be, especially if you're doing stool testing, is it can start to feel like a game of whack-a-mole where you're like, oh, this strain is low, this strain is low. And no, this is this is just a lovely way to change the whole terrain such that it favors the growth of the beneficial species, basically those flowers in your gut garden, while it, it, it sort of prevents or discourages the growth of the opportunists, those weeds. So I, I love a good probiotic. Alongside that, and then this is really where testing is absolutely essential, is if there's any kind of organism that's overgrowing. And there can be all sorts. You know, starting from the stomach, you could have an H. pylori overgrowth, right? H. pylori damages the parietal cells. The parietal cells are the cells that secrete that hydrochloric acid we just talked about is so important. So, and that's rampant. After COVID, it's been really interesting. I think the stress level, stress is one of the things that su suppresses hydrochloric acid production and creates the opportunity for something like H. pylori to take hold. Never seen so much H. pylori as I have during and post pandemic is, it, I don't know, are we post pandemic? I'm not sure, whatever, wherever we are now, <laughs> stress levels through the roof, we're seeing H. pylori through the roof. It can be opportunistic bacteria. It could be fungal overgrowth, parasites. I mean, there's so many different things that can grow and you need to have a test to tell you what that is because you're not gonna do an H. pylori protocol just in case. That's a that's a full-on protocol. You don't want to be just encasing that kind of stuff. Same thing with parasites, same thing with fungus. And I know that there's, uh, you know, 
there's certain schools of thought that is like for back in the day, it was everybody has candida. And a lot of people did have candida, but not everybody. And I feel like now it's like everybody has parasites. Well, a lot of people do have parasites, but not everybody. Testing can be so invaluable. A parasite protocol is expensive, hard on the body. Like you only want to do it if you actually have a parasite um, that needs eradication. So so that's where testing is invaluable. So we've talked about function. We've talked about gut, the healing and sealing the lining of the gut. We've talked about the microbiome and we've talked about opportunist pathogens. And then the last piece is what I talked about already with the food sensitivities, identifying and temporarily removing those food triggers. Because if you think about it, let alone all the other health issues that can arise from elevated systemic inflammation, which is what happens when you have food sensitivities, right? It's this you know, it's this kind of it's like a little bit like water torture, just this drip, drip, drip of inflammation because you're eating these foods every single day, multiple times a day. And it's not like, it's not like you broke your arm kind of inflammation. It's just this like steady, slow drip that never, ever, ever stops. And it's taxing your immune system and your body's always dealing with it. That's the stuff that just drags us down. That is what leads to chronic disease. So, so we need to identify those and remove those because it also is part of what irritates the gut lining. So if you, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, this is great. I'm going to save money and I'm going to just do the gut testing and heal the gut and that solves the issue. The problem with that is that then you're not, you're basically keeping in a key irritant the whole time that you're trying to heal. So you got to remove the irritant right? So that it allows the opportunity to, for the body to heal. So those are the five key things you really want to be thinking about with gut healing. And some of this, you absolutely need testing. Some of this, you can hack it at home. So I don't want folks to feel like they have to leave and spend thousands of dollars, right? Like there's certain things, I mean, even a good, like a good enzyme support is going to take you a step in the right direction. Some gut healing, take you a step in the right direction. Mygospore biotic is going to take you a step in the right direction. Pulling out the usual suspects it's in terms of the diet, it's going to take you in the right direction. Might not take you across the finish line, but you can definitely feel better. And it's a really important starting point. In fact, I love it when clients have already done all of that kind of stuff and now we're diving in because now it's like, okay, now we can just lean in and kind of finish it up. One thing I have seen with people that are, are doing self-driven protocols is mm -hmm. that sometimes they develop with that opportunist pathogen part, they develop this mindset of kill everything, right? Let me just, I, I have to, I have to uh, eliminate everything, get rid of everything. Why is that not the way someone should be thinking about that? Well, you don't, you don't we need diversity. We need that microbiome balance and you don't want to be endlessly trying to eradicate. These eradication protocols, I don't take them lightly. They're very intense on the system. You know, it's a little bit like chronically detoxing too. It, that can get quite addictive for folks. So we, I, I think, I'm not sure where this sort of drive for utter sanitation has come from. I think that there's a similar impetus there of like, mm. I'm dirty inside. I want to clean. I've got these pathogens. I've got these bacteria. It's kind of like, oh, I don't want bacteria. I don't want, but some of them are really, really important and incredibly beneficial. And you actually want that diversity. You know, you don't, you just, I mean, just thinking about your garden, right? You don't, you don't want a monocrop. First of all, it's not interesting. Second of all, it's, it doesn't create a, a rich ecosystem. It's, it's very, I mean, it's just our inner ecosystem, we need that diversity. So we need to not chronically be in kill mode 
we want to be able to to nourish and support at the same time. That's so so important, and and it it exhausts the immune system. These eradication protocols they they don't they're not they're not easy. Yeah, I totally agree. So I know we're getting close on time, but I want to touch on maybe just a couple. Are there any foods that you think we should pri- be prioritizing first? Um, I know we kind of touched on some foods that we we should avoid, but any yeah. any of your favorite foods and we're speaking more generally, right? Obviously we, we can't say every single thing works for every single person. Kind of like the whole superfood conversation we had earlier. If it creates inflammation for you, it's not a health food for you, but are there foods that you see that work really well for a lot of people? Yeah, absolutely. Here's a couple of things that are just really good for gut healing as well as bone health. I think, um, one of them is bone broth. Just adding that into your diet, it's a great protein extenders and it is just really nourishing for the gut. It's really soothing um, depending on where you live at this time of year, it might be really cold and it's lovely to, and, and just warm and nourishing. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the healing power of bone broth. I'm a big believer if you can tolerate them in ferments. So fermented vegetables, you know, like the naturally fermented sauerkraut. So when I say naturally fermented, what I mean is not one that's that's using vinegar, but typically it's either, sometimes they will add some bacteria to it. Oftentimes it's just like sea salt and crushed up cabbage. Same thing with like like pickles, like the naturally fermented pickles, like Bubby's pickles. Bubbies. That's very widely I available. got Bubby's in the fridge. Oh yeah, Bubby's is awesome. And, and if you find that that stuff creates some digestive havoc, you can just sip on the juice. You just have like a tablespoon or two of juice at the beginning of a meal or with your food and that can help. Um, so those are some really nice gut healing Something that I think um, is really important for health overall because it fuels the immune system and it fuels our muscle synthesis, which is just sufficient protein. Mm. I feel like this is like the macronutrient that's getting its moment in the sun right now. But for really important reasons, I think most folks dramatically under consume. I will, I mean, I'm right there. I'm a nutrition professional. I've been doing this work for 17 years and I've never been a big tracker, you know, and I just made some assumptions. And then Last December, a year ago, literally to have something to talk about on social media, I was like, I'm going to just track my protein and make sure I'm getting my 120 grams of protein a day. Ooh, I was so far. I was astounded at what that actually translated into. Um, So I think way more people need to be eating more protein than they recognize. And I know that your audience a lot of females, a lot of like, you know, similar, you know, perimenopausal, postmenopausal, and we're thinking about hormone health. We're thinking about bone health. We're thinking about muscle. This is so important. And we can get away with not eating as much protein when we're younger because our hormones pick up the slack. They don't pick up that slack anymore, <laughs> most unfortunately. So I think it's also, it's the building blocks of our immune system. I think that's something that people don't realize those immunoglobulins that I talked about earlier, those are, that's protein, yeah. um, building block of many of your hormones, right? So, um, so, so important to our health overall. Um, and then allowing us to lift the heavy things that is so critical for maintaining bone health as, as we age. So those would be my biggest just sort of a general dietary um, pieces of advice in addition to to staying clear of the usual suspects as much as possible. I think those are things that pretty much everybody can benefit from. And then we have to get into the fine tuning. But I think those those pieces, if you were to just do that, you're, you're doing pretty darn well. I think that's great. Yeah. I was actually, uh, when I was in Austin, Texas uh, this past weekend, 
um, there's a restaurant called Picnic down there and they had this great like regenerative bone broth uh, that you can have with your meal. And I, you better believe I had a little cup of that alongside uh, a healthy meal. It was great. So I'm always on board when I can get some bone broth and I think that's a fantastic mm -hmm. recommendation. Uh, Margaret, so let's let people know where can they find you? What resources do you have that would be really helpful for people? Yeah. We'll be sure to leave those down in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Okay. So a few different things. We talked about food sensitivity testing. I actually wrote a whole series um, on food sensitivity testing and gut healing. So I'm going to make sure you get a copy of that. It's a four-part series, but for those of you who just really want to understand this, know the test, know the process, um, I would love you guys to have that. Secondly, if you are looking for a practitioner who does this kind of work, um, the, at our school. So it's restorativewellnesssolutions.com. If you go to, go to that and then find a practitioner and we have over 1200 practitioners, um, in 24 countries around the world, the vast majority of them are here in the U S but we have, we have people all over. Um, and our foundational training program is exactly what I'm talking about here. This gut healing program, it's mastering the art and science of gastrointestinal healing, where we do a 12 week intensive training practice practitioners on how to do um, really profound work using the tools that I've talked about here. So that would be my third thing is if there's anyone in the audience here who is a practitioner and who's interested in doing a deep dive into this methodology and this work, and I will say, I have seen some pretty amazing turnarounds. I mentioned at the beginning, my interest in autoimmune just using this, I mean, I, I use a lot of other tools as well, but just using this methodology, I have seen some of the most complex quote unquote, irreversible autoimmune conditions, including things like myasthenia gravis, POTS, multiple sclerosis, things that are hard, turn around using just what I talked about here. This is a profoundly um, powerful tool. So um, if anyone's interested in that, if you go to our um, well, actually a couple of other, okay, I just got another resource. So, uh, well, restorativewellnesssolutions.com is our main website. That'll tell you everything about the school. Mastergutthealing.com is our um, is our registration page. And then I will also make sure that um, we, Kevin, that we get, we I just taught a deep dive masterclass on food sensitivity testing. So it will complement that article that I gave really well. And if anyone, particularly, I mean, anyone can go to it, particularly the practitioners in the crowd, just you're just kind of wanting to see some of the science behind this and understand it a little bit more. Um, that can be a really good resource as well. So I'll make sure we get you guys links for all of those different pieces. Our, our next cohort's um, starting in March of 2024. And so um, any practitioners in the house, we'd love to see you there. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's an, it's an amazing practitioner program that you got set up. So uh, that's exciting for anybody who ends up taking part. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge, your expertise, always a pleasure to chat with you too. So um, I'm glad for you, for everybody listening, you can find all the resources, show notes, everything mentioned here today over at bonecoach.com. We will link to all the links that Margaret mentioned here down in the show notes. And I want to thank you again so much for your time. We'll see you in the next episode. Hope you found this episode of The Bone Coach Show helpful. You can find all the resources, show notes, everything mentioned over at bonecoach.com. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, be sure to share it with someone you love, a friend, family member, even a group of people. And also be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode that can help you improve your bones, your health, and your future. 
One last reminder, if you haven't done so already, head over to bonecoach.com for more great resources to help you get on the path to stronger bones and an active future. I'm your bone coach, Kevin Ellis. I'll see you in the next episode.